Hello, friends. Welcome to the Rogado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, and artists who challenge the way we think and help us to grow in more empathy and compassion. In this week's podcast, we're honored to learn from Dr. Ali Michael and Dr. Eleonora Bartoli about their helpful new book entitled Our Problem, Our Path, Collective Anti-Racism for White People. It's a powerful resource to help us learn ways to talk about race, combat racism, and build skills to be actively anti-racist to drive systematic change. In this episode, they share why it's so difficult for us to talk about race and some of the emotional distress we sometimes feel. They share what it means to be anti-racist and why it's a daily practice. They talk about why racism is a white person problem. They also talk about how to grieve and display empathy for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, especially when they're hurting. They talk about the pros and cons of virtue signaling, what to know about race-related stress, what the anti-critical race theory movement is all about, and at the end of the podcast, they share advice on how to raise anti-racist children. Our special guest today are Dr. Eleonora Bartoli. She's a consultant and licensed psychologist specializing in trauma, resilience building, and multicultural social justice counseling. She earned her PhD in psychology and focused her studies on human development and mental health research from the University of Chicago. We're also joined by Dr. Ali Michael, who is the director of Race Institute for K-12 educators, and she works with schools and organizations across the country to help make research on race, whiteness, and education more accessible and relevant to educators. She's also the author of several award-winning books, including Raising Race Questions and the new book we're talking about today, which is entitled Our Problem, Our Path, Collective Anti-Racism for White People. Here's our conversation. So first, I'd love to start off by asking a little bit more about how you both met. Great. So... Well, Eleanor and I met at a conference 20 years ago where we were listening to a scholar named Elizabeth Nenevi talk about how white people can support one another to walk an anti-racist journey. And Eleanor turned to me, I had never met her before, and was like, you want to do this? You want to do that? You want to do this together? We could, we could start a group. And we started this little group. It was just uh, Eleanor and me, my partner, my sister, and, and her partner. We a little group of five. We met on a, a monthly basis for years to talk about race and racism, to read books about race and racism, to practice talking about race. Because I had grown up in a community where we didn't talk about race, where I really was actively socialized to be colorblind. And so by the time I met Eleonora, I was very eager to talk about race and racism. I had learned a lot about it, but I still had a lot of... Um, stumbling blocks, even just physiologically, like it was actually, I had actively trained to not talk about this stuff, to think it was rude to talk about it. And so we formed this little group where we practiced and we asked stupid questions and we supported one another. And, um, and that, you know, has evolved into a friendship where we think together about where are we going to send our kids to go to school? How am I going to integrate anti-racism into my workplace? what path will I take to drive across the city of Philadelphia to get to my dentist appointment? You know, and why do I even have to think about that? Well, because I have learned so much anti-blackness over the years that driving through anti uh, driving through black neighborhoods actually gives me pause in a way that it, I know that it shouldn't. And yet it does. And so in every moment of my life, 
knowing that I'm going to be able to process this with Eleonora. We're going to be able to talk about that. That's where we, that, that's kind of the foundation of our friendship. And that's how it's continued till today. Yeah, go ahead. I conversation, you know, I, I was brought up and I was born and raised in Italy. And when I came to the United States, it was the first time that really the racial conversation became relevant to me. I was brought up in a, in a very homogeneous country at that time. And I realized that, uh, you know, as, a, as an Italian, I felt very free to ask all the wrong questions, as you can imagine. And I was very promptly shut down just for asking the questions. So when I saw Ali asking all the questions and they have an entire conference when this was an open conversation, I was overjoyed to have a space to really delve into it. And as Ali said, we met prior to kids, prior to uh, professional lives. And so we really could navigate at every step of our personal and professional lives, talking to each other and deciding, well, how are we going to actually walk an anti-racist path on a day-to-day basis? And this is not something, even having read a lot of books, that either Ali or I really could do smoothly without talking to each other or practicing or brainstorming and forming a community. So this is really what the book is about in large part. I think I think it's beautiful and amazing that you both like 20 years ago decided to like do this and start having like very intentional, hard conversations about race. Um, can you talk a little bit about the feelings of being uncomfortable, uh, making mistakes, not sure how to navigate certain terminology? Because I think that um, I'd like for you to talk about that because maybe those listening in might want to do the same thing, but are feeling very fearful about doing something like this. One of the things I've learned from Eleonora is that when we're not good at talking about race, it's not because we're bad students. It's actually because we're good students. It's because we've learned really well from a society that does not want us to learn how to talk about this, that the status quo continues pretty well as long as white people aren't asking questions about race and racism. And so like racism itself itself kind of maintains itself by when we don't talk about race and when we don't challenge it, when we don't think about it. And so, you know, I learned not to talk about race. I learned to, uh, to try to be colorblind, to try to demonstrate that I was colorblind. And, um, as a result, I had no skill. I would go into a race conversation even after many classes on race and racism in college and I would still kind of stumble and stutter and and the big thing was that I thought racism was like somebody else's problem like it's not about me because I'm white and and I'm not overtly racist I don't use racial slurs uh my family doesn't hate people of color so therefore it's not about me it's about somebody else entirely and I heard this quote from James Baldwin at one point who said, no, racism is not a person of color problem. It's a white person problem. It's not going to change until white people start to do something about it. And then I thought, okay, so I need to take action. But here I am. I make mistakes when I open my mouth or I try to talk about how race and racism have impacted me. And it's like, well, uh, you know, I'm, wh- I'm white. So uh, I, I don't know, you know, and I'd like kind of go off like, just trail off at the end of a sentence like uh or i try to make a statement about something i believed and somebody would contradict me or i think like that was wrong and i go away from the conversation feeling this shame 
And so a couple of things I've gotten used to, and then I'll pass it to Eleonora because she, Eleonora can listen to what I'm saying. And as a trained therapist, she can talk about what's actually happening in my body when this happens. But what would happen, what I've realized is that I'm probably always going to feel bad after I have race conversations because I'm doing something I was actively trained not to do. Just like if I were to kind of like snap my fingers at, at the wait staff at a restaurant or something. Like I would never do that. It's so rude. I don't do rude things, right? Talking about race is one of the things I was taught to see as rude. Um, and so now what I realize is that this, this feeling that I did something wrong is gonna, is gonna stick with me. And it's not because it's actually wrong. It's because I'm doing something that I was taught not to do. What do you think, Eleonora? Yes, it reminds me of uh, a time during my graduate schooling where for the first time I named race and felt this guilt emerging and this shame emerging within me. And I thought, oh, look, I'm fully acculturated. So when I came to the United States, I didn't have a any opinion or thoughts about race per se. There were a lot of racist tropes, I think, embedded, which I understood later in Italian culture, but it wasn't a taboo subject. And so it's not like I went to the, I came to the United States and took a course in white supremacies and how white people should act to support white supremacy. I didn't take such a course, nor CE courses to make sure that that information was reinforced. All I had to do is to learn to function and to feel safe in the United States. And so that got internalized as don't talk about race uh, and don't uh, interfere with the way things are because that's bad. And so, you know, anti-racism is going against the grain of what we have taught, our bodies have taught that is safe to do. And to some extent it's true when we really take perhaps steps that uh, really kind of challenge the status quo in some really profound way. And sometimes it's not. It's just that I've even been taught that it's unsafe to name race, to say um, uh, to somebody that, you know, that that white person that I was talking to, that's a, that you shouldn't be even be talking about uh, how someone might appear. And so my system goes into this reactive defensive mode before even I get the chance to decide whether I want to say what I want to do about it. So the very first step, as Ali said, is can we even just talk? Can we even train our bodies to enter the conversation? Mm. And once we enter the conversation, which it took a while for us to buy within those books, it was really practice and engaging with the topic. And then you can start thinking more complexly about it as well. And so if you don't take into account how your body is trying to fight a sense of unsafety, which is not a real unsafety, it's more an internalized sense, then you really can take the steps along the path. Yeah, I'm really glad you're talking about kind of the internal conflict and the emotions happening underneath the surface, because that is like a huge part. I was actually, um, as I was reading your book, I was thinking back to uh, my first conversation, I remember being maybe like four or five years old and I was, I was raised in a, in a white neighborhood in Orange County and um, I never really saw black people. And so we were watching TV and I saw some black people and I remember talking to my mom. I said, oh, mom, those people are black. And this is like early 70s. And my mom says, oh, they don't want to be called black. They want to be called colored people. And so that was my very first uh term I've ever heard about, oh, you don't call them black, you call them colored people. This is early 70s. But I remember like having a, uh, like an emotional moment at that point, like, oh, I said it wrong. And I have to be really careful when I talk about black people or any other race. And so that's like my very first conversation, which also 
led to like later on, like being it, making it difficult for me to talk about it. Yeah. I really appreciate that story. And I appreciate your mom because she actually said, well, here, let me give you a different terminology. Whereas there's this theologian named Tandeka who writes about the, she's a black theologian who studies white families. And she says, you know, white families tend to just silence their children. So most families in the early 70s would have said, Mm. no, Mike, that's wrong. Don't notice skin color. And so then you're sitting there thinking like, well, it's kind of obvious we have different skin colors. And, you know, in in a whole different world, it might not be because race is a social construction. But in the U.S., where we are so heavily racialized, blackness and whiteness have been given meaning for the last 500 years. It's impossible not to notice it unless we're actively trained to pretend we don't see it. And that's what often happens to kids and to be shamed when we do see it. And so, you know, kudos to your mom for saying like, well, you did see it, but you're right. That, that very early, it's like early on, we learned that this is emotional, that there's stuff that happens in our bodies when we don't get it right. And what we end up doing is silencing ourselves because we don't want to offend and we don't want to say it wrong. We don't want to be racist. And what we give our kids is like all the messages of what not to do, what not to say, how, how to like uh, escape embarrassment. And what we don't give them is like, here's how to be actively anti-racist. Here's how to be a healthy contributing member to a multiracial community and society. And, and, um, and, here, and, and, and part of that, one of the skills for being part of a healthy multiracial community is being able to navigate the racial stress that is going to come up that, that in our bodies and in our communities when we, when, you know, whenever we're talking about race or navigating a thorny racial issue, that, that stress is, is very normal. It's not unhealthy. There's nothing wrong about it. But like you, I was, well, I don't, I might be projecting here. I was really taught to kind of avoid that stress and I wasn't giving skills for navigating it. And part of what we want is to support readers to have the skills to, uh, to be a part of a healthy multiracial society. And because we are a multiracial society um, and we're working on the healthy part. Dr. Bertoli, can you talk about the kind of the emotional struggles that are happening internally when we're kind of confronted with race and we've been told maybe it's it's um, uh, you're not saying it right or don't talk about it. Right. So, you know, as a white person, we also often are taught to be a good person and a thoughtful person and to um, uh, be really fair to people. You know, I think the saying don't... Um, don't react to the uh, way people look, but really look behind the skin as we were saying, let's be fair, really talk about the person, not just, you know, what they might look like. And, um, and we're really hardworking. And so there we are, you know, I remember even times in my own career where I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to be a good anti-racist white person that does the right thing in the right place. And then my colleague of Carl comes to me and says, you know, what you did yesterday was actually racist. And let me tell you why. And I'm thinking, what? I was actually trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to be a fair person, a good person. And all of a sudden, I'm not really listening to my friend of color who's trying to give me feedback. I'm trying to justify that I'm a good person because I don't want to be a bad person. I'm not a bad person. And so the whole topic gets sort of uh, uh, co-opted by my attempt to prove my goodness. It has nothing to do with what's actually Mm. happening. And so one of the 
skills that we need that we're not usually taught is to understand and the first thing is to actually take care of our heart and take care of our bodies and to reground. Because without that skill, your flight, fight, freeze response takes over and that response physiologically actually shuts down the parts of your brain that allow you to empathize and learn. So there you are, all activated with no capacity for empathy or learning and just struggling to prove yourself a good person. And so such a simple skill can actually bring your brain back into a state where you can listen, learn something new, and the two don't have to be, you can be a very good person who made a mistake. As Ali keeps saying, this is a skill. And I have really have given much practice about how to practice the skills so of course I'll make mistakes now one thing that I also feel strongly about is that in my unconscious state when I even if I don't try to do anything there's no neutrality I am trained within a white supremacist culture and therefore chances are I'm gonna act through those lenses so I'm already making mistakes I don't want to minimize mistakes that I'm gonna just you know do anything that comes to mind I want to be thoughtful but if we don't make mistakes and are willing to hear the feedback, then we're never growing and walking along that path. And I think sometimes what's hard is that um, obviously nobody wants to make mistakes. We don't want to be racist. Um, but when we're in that state of, um, you know, fight, flight, res uh, fear response or agitation, we're upset, we're emotionally charged up. That can just make the situation just so much worse. How do you, how do you begin to ground yourself before you have these conversations? And I'm even thinking about even before someone watches a video on YouTube about race, um, how do you kind of mentally prepare yourself and ground yourself for something that might be hard to hear? or hard to read. Yeah, so the book has some interesting and very simple grounding exercises, but I'm gonna talk about something that perhaps is a little bit more, um, a bit different, which is you mentioned, you know, we don't wanna be racist. So if I'm a white person entering a conversation about race, my biggest fear is that I'm going to be racist. So that's what I'm gonna to try to defend is my non racistness you know? And so um, <laughs> yeah. that's called stereotype threat. The stereotype threat, right, is when um, we fear meeting a stereotype. So then my identity, in this conversation, for example, my identity as a white person is big, front and center. I'm not actually thinking much about being a, a cis woman. I'm really mostly thinking about being a white person because we're talking about race, right? And so now if I say some blunder, which I probably already have, and if I think about them, I'm thinking, oh my God, I have to now prove myself I'm a good person because I'm a white person. And I forget that I have lots of other identities. I'm a spiritual person. I'm a parent. I am a sister. I am a good friend. And so what happens when your stereotype threat is activated, which means when you're fearing meeting the stereotype of the white woman, for example, all my resources now are geared toward defending, uh, proving the stereotype wrong and no longer having the conversation. So very simple tasks that have very powerful effect. In this moment, I'm gonna remember, yes, and I'm also a parent, and I'm also a good friend, uh, and I'm also somebody who loves to cook for neighbors, <laughs> you know, and I'm also somebody who loves to go into nature. There's a lot more to me, all of a sudden, all the other parts of me can actually hold that part that is having a little bit of a trouble figuring out how to exist in a way that feels right to that part of me. Um, I wanna talk about your book title, our problem, our path, collective anti-racism for white people. Um, very powerful title, very direct. 
Um, but I can see some people being already triggered by that title, uh, especially those who feel like that's not my problem. I'm not racist. Right. And so you're calling it out in the title. And I wonder if you can talk, talk a little bit about, about why is it that title that you chose for this book? So it's funny because I don't think of it as a call out. For me, it's almost like permission. So when, when I heard this quote from James Baldwin, like racism is a white person problem, it was almost like an invitation or a benediction. Like you, this, is, this belongs to you too. You are needed. Bring what you got, basically. And, and for me, as a white person who felt kind of always outside of racism and racial dynamics, it was really powerful to say, no, you're part of the problem. And so therefore you're part of the solution. So do you can, you are also needed. So for me, it was an, it was more of an invitation. And then the other thing that we, we try to get readers to think about is the fact, not just that racism is like my problem as a white person, I have to do something about it, but racism hurts me too. So obviously racism doesn't hurt me in the way that it hurts people of color and native people. And there are lots of ways in which white people benefit from racism. But fundamentally, racism makes us more easy to manipulate. Um, it makes it harder for us to get to build relationships across race. Our society would look so different if it weren't for the the overt social and public policy, which kept us separate and also pitted us against each other in terms of racial groups for so long. There's so much power in our society that we would derive as basically a population if we weren't divided and taught not to see common cause, not to see each other clearly. And so I can name personal relationships that uh, would look different if it weren't for racism. And I can also name whole communities I've lived in and institutions I've been a part of that would be stronger and healthier. Our whole society would benefit if racism hadn't um, denied education and opportunity to so many different racial groups over, over time. And we would look different if we honored the knowledge and experience of Native people and their sovereign tribal rights. I mean, so there's just, there's, so our problem is really about like, not just it's my responsibility somehow, but racism hurts me too. So this is something I need to be engaged with. And the path is about not getting overwhelmed by that <laughs> because it can feel like, you know, I mean, after George Floyd was murdered, I, I was like, I got to quit my job. I got to go back to law school. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not making change fast enough. I don't know how to, I just want things to be different. And a, a native friend of mine said, listen, racism, like, like anti-racism, like decolonization is, it's not instantaneous. It's a practice. It's a path. You get up every day, you walk it, you mm -hmm. try to get other people to walk it. And that's where the piece about collective anti-racism for white people comes in. Cause we find that white people tend to compete with one another. And so it's kind of like, if I'm anti-racist and that guy says something racist, then I'm anti that guy. Because he's the racist and I'm the anti-racist. And we set it up as this, di this dynamic where we're in competition mm. with each other and I need to win. I need to be the most anti-racist white person in the room because I need to show my credential. This is part of what Eleanor is talking about with stereotype mm. threats. Like I'm trying to prove myself because if I don't, then what am I? I'm just some, I'm some terrible person who's letting silence be violence and I'm not doing my part. And what we're saying is no, we have to be strategic 
if I just shame that white person over there for saying something racist, maybe I shut them up in the moment. But where does that actually get us? Because then that, what they find, they feel like marginalized from, from a community of anti-racism. They don't want to be a part of, they don't want to talk to people who are anti-racist. They don't want to, they don't want to think about this stuff. It's like they developed this, 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 this wall of anxiety that keeps them away from this conversation. What I want to do is not let that person off the hook, but engage with that person from the sense that like, you said something racist today. I could say something tomorrow. At the end of the day, we're both white people living in a society structured by a racial hierarchy. I'm not better than you because I took some classes that helped me learn this. You're not worse than me. Um, we're both just trying to figure it out. So I'm going to support you, challenge you, but from the sense that like you are that that there's so much possibility for your learning and that you have important things to contribute to this struggle too. Because at the end of the day. We don't need just one fabulously anti-racist white person per institution or per city. We need millions of white people to walk an anti-racist path for the course of their lives and to teach their children to do so. I mean, that's what it's really going to take to change our society. And so if white people can lean into each other and support one another to walk this path and, and to do the learning that we need to do over time, that's, gonna, that's the strategic pathway forward. Um, rather than thinking that I just have to, um, it's all about me making sure I maintain my image as an anti-racist person in that moment. Why, why do you think it is that we are so competitive and love to attack each other? Because I, I remember um, yeah, right after George Floyd was killed, I got a Black, Black Lives Matter t-shirt and I was wearing that. And then there's a lot of xenophobia and anti-Asian racism. So I got to stop AAPI hate t-shirt as well. And I'm wearing them on my bike rides. Then I was hearing complaints about virtue signaling. And I'm like, gosh, I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> I'm not trying to do anything. I'm just trying to raise awareness to some issues that I care about. Um, but I feel like there's so much fighting and yeah, I, I, I don't, any, you, either you could respond to that one. <laughs> Oh. So that's a classic fight response. So what Ali was saying, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to actually go to law school or um, I'm going to shut this person down. Your system feels threatened. You're clearly in distress. So how do we, you know, our empathy puts us a little bit in the shoes of somebody else. So we have to actually be able to hold what that emotion feels in our body. Otherwise, we feel so overwhelmed by that emotion or the grief even in that moment, in your case, Ali, that you went into, I don't want, I'm going to change this. I'm going to change this. You're not actually sitting and holding it and strategically thinking about what to do. You're trying to get rid of the feeling as soon as possible, the comfort of the horrors of watching racism and your fight reaction was I'm going to law school or I am I'm going to really shut down this person and so what also white people are not taught to do is to grieve racism. The moment we don't think it's our problem and it doesn't pertain to us, we don't see how it hurts us and we numb to it. And so we don't grieve it. And that makes us even more susceptible to have be overwhelmed by it and have fly five freeze reactions to it. Um, yeah, I, I think also in terms of the t-shirt, I love that example, Mike, because I, I have felt that like, I actually had this experience where um, I, I, I wanted to make sure 
to reach out to colleagues of color after George Floyd was killed, particularly, of course, to my black colleagues and to write essentially condolences, you know, to really say I'm connecting with you around this. And there were some really important connections that happened through that, um, where I honored people's grief and shared my own. And then I like a year later, I started seeing that kind of action be mocked on sitcoms where it's like, oh, another colleague telling me they're sorry black people are being killed. You know, there's like everything is mockable. Everything is everything is mockable. And then when we read stuff mm -hmm. about virtue signaling, I think that it's, it's easy to feel like, oh, that's about me, you know, because I'm, I'm reading online and I'm like, oh, but the thing is, like the virtue signaling that somebody's referring to online may or may not be about me. So there's a there's a piece of me that needs to listen to that and say, like, am I virtue signaling? Am I just trying to prove where I stand so that people will see me as not racist? Like, am I just trying to differentiate myself from the racists and I'm the not racist? Or am I doing what uh, right. Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams says is showing my love in public? Because I imagine there are also people in your life who are so grateful to see the T-shirts that you are wearing. And... And that is, you know, and I think, think, you know, the person online might be referring to somebody in their workplace who really is virtue signaling in a way that's hurtful, feels very superficial and more about them than about the pain of black people who have just experienced this increased group vulnerability, visible vulnerability. But it, your T-shirt wearing might be about something else. And the other thing is, it might be about a little bit of both. And I think part of what we want to communicate is that, you know, it's so easy to get into this hive mind because there's one critique online or multiple critiques online that make people feel like, oh, no, there's you, it makes us feel like we're backed into a corner. There's no right way forward. And what we want to say mm -hmm. is like we live in a society profoundly impacted by racism. In some ways, we're all backed into a corner by, by that. There's not going to be one right way forward. There are literally millions of right way for right ways forward and sometimes it will be right to wear the t-shirt and sometimes it will be wrong and the question is am I trying to put this message out into the world or am I trying to prove who I am um, and so and so we want to invite people mm. to just keep going back to the core value that is guiding the love message I'm putting out or the the grief message I'm putting out so I said to my a, a black colleague of mine I wanted to um, I wanted to reach out to you at different times this year, like particularly when the new Supreme Court justice was, was confirmed because I was like, yes, a black woman on the Supreme Court. But then I didn't because I was afraid that would just be such a stereotypically white thing to do. And she was like, you know, maybe it is, but you are my friend. And that's something that we both celebrate, mm. you know, and and so I have to also get over myself and just remember, fundamentally, I'm deeply rooted in relationships where I am a white person. I can't change that. And there's some stereotypes that go along with that. But also, I acknowledge how significant it is to have a black woman on the Supreme Court. And I want to celebrate that, not just with my black friends, but with all friends who are thinking about and living for racial justice. And so, but I'm with you, Mike, in that I have to, like, on a daily basis, do that work. And sometimes I have to call Eleonora and say, process this with me, because I want to get over myself here. I want to, you know, and, and I don't want to just, I don't want to just be silent. <laughs> but I also don't need, you know, I don't need to put the burden on my colleagues of color to reassure me, this is how you can show up. 
you know, so, and that's why white people need each other. Because sometimes we don't know the, we don't know how to be affirming. We don't know the right way to be supportive. Um, and we can process that with, with one another kind of in a, in a white space um, so that we can show up more fully in a multiracial space. Can you talk about the processing? Because I love what you just said, Dr. Michael, about the questions that come up. Why am I putting on this shirt or why do I want to send that text message or that email? Do I have the right intentions or am I like, can you try to talk, talk to us about how do we process and start to think through our our upcoming action is where we're, we're meaning to do well but is there racism even in that meaning? So one thing that is important to understand that I, uh, so I teach about trauma-informed anti-racism or trauma-informed counseling services. I practice trauma-informed work and uh, I practice trying to come back and reground myself in times when I'm activated and still that happens to me. So I assume that every time that the race conversation comes up, a part of me, at least a part of me is going to be activated. And so one, the first step is to really begin paying attention to, okay, what part of me is activated rather than say, oh, am I activated? <laughs> to what extent am I activated? You know, it's yes, you probably are activated and that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's natural. It's your body trying to protect you. No big, not a big deal. And so you enter a space in a relationship that is accepting and affirming of who you are, not accepting and affirming of every choice you're making or every thought you're having, but affirming and accepting of who you are. So if I go to Ali, which I go many times, including just last week with my tears and my and my suffering and my uh you know getting in my head and she just listens the first thing she does is always she listens and then she affirms what she heard that was important to me and then we look at the facts together and then we look at the context and how I might have interpreted facts because of the content and then we strategize how to best move forward you know then if it's me of course I'll think about it <laughs> for 20 more hours afterwards <laughs> and come up with more ideas, which then I call Ali back and say, hey, oh, these are all my ideas <laughs> from having thought, uh, thought about it 20 more hours. Um, but, and those are spaces that then I would come back to, you know, I would try a new thing. I would move forward in your direction. And then we might even come back again and say, well, I tried this, but this worked, this didn't work. Um, what do you think? Oh, in my experience, this happens or, or, uh, yes, when I when I get into that impasse, is what I do. Try it in other way. It's really a brainstorming, but it starts from a place where we welcome each other as people, as humans trying to do the right thing. I'm gonna be flawed. I'm gonna be reactive. I'm gonna do stereotypically white behaviors. Absolutely. But that's for other white people. People of color don't have to come every time and rescue us from ourselves in this process. It's nice to have other white people who understand also what's like to go through that very process of stumbling, wanting to do something, not knowing what to do, and trying to move forward. And I see oftentimes in organization white people tearing each other down, especially these days. And um, there's no one that can do it right enough. People, white people are trying to outright each other, 
out, call out each other. And that's just not helpful. It makes the problem uh, more, uh, uh, it stuck, it, it, the process is more stuck. And, um, and it doesn't actually address what's going on, understanding that we are all embedded in this, in this structure that we can so easily extricate ourselves from and operate outside of. We have to, we are always going to be partially operating inside of it as we are transforming it. I want to ask you a little bit about um, actions moving forward and things we can all be doing to be anti-racist on a, on a daily basis. And uh, one of the current issues right now that we're seeing a lot of debate on is around critical race theory in schools. And we have some states banning it. And there's a lot of parent teacher groups debating, uh, bringing CRT into the educational system. And I'm wondering like your advice on how to approach those conversations because they can get so heated. There's a lot of misinformation out there, a lot of myths out there. Um, your advice on how do we begin to have more empathy for each other and how do we have a, like a a conversation without 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 trying to get too I too think it depends on if you're having a personal conversation or a public conversation but I think that it's important you know to remember that the anti-CRT movement is a very well-funded movement that is a political movement designed to sow mm -hmm. conflict in local communities in order to have more conservative wins in the election cycle that's coming up. So there's a great report from UCLA called the conflict campaign that kind of describes the funding that has gone into this and the ways in which it has been structured. So it, you know, it's, it's a very strategic campaign because it essentially, uh, plays on the the very fears we've been talking about. The fact that when people are like, oh my God, I don't want to talk about race or yeah, I hate that conversation too. Um, you know, so great. Like there's an anti-CRT <laughs> thing. I, you know, I'll kind of get behind that or I won't speak up against it because I'm glad, you know, talking about race is scary to me. And, um, and, but that's not fundamentally, that's not what this is about. It's a wedge issue. It's a, it's about voting and it's about power. And I think that one of the things the African-American Policy Forum really recommends is that we talk about what we stand for, because the anti-CRT movement is about um, a couple talking points. So if you go to any of the school board meetings or if you read about some of the places where there's an anti-CRT sentiment, there's some very clear talking points that show up. And what I think we need to do um, for people who think it's actually important for us to talk about race, because if we don't, we can't talk about racism. And because it's a part of our history, is to say, like, what do you believe? And we don't need complex talking points. It's like, I am pro-truth. I am pro-truth. I want to hear the realities of the complex human mm -hmm. beings around me. That includes people of color, Native people, trans folks, gay and lesbian folks, women. I want to hear about their realities and how to build a society that's big enough for all of us. Because at the end of the day, there is enough for all of us to be a part of it. I want to talk about, I'm pro-unity. I'm pro-unity. I'm pro-community. I'm pro-history. I want to hear at the, you know, it's funny because we talk about how people, people think like history, we're changing history. It's like with this modern rendition of history that includes all the stories from people of color. And if that yeah. doesn't align with what you learned, then it must be wrong. <laughs> and I think about taking my kid to the zoo and there's this special exhibit on dinosaurs. And I'm looking at these dinosaurs. I'm like, I did not learn. I grew up in Pittsburgh with the Carnegie Museum. I've never heard of any of these things. Like, 
the dinosaurs have feathers. There's like, you know, 30 foot birds. I mean, I never like what we know about dinosaurs is so different from what I knew in the 80s. Right. Like this is, you know, because our knowledge changes and we know right. different things about history now. I'm pro history. I want to hear those stories, the things that we now know about history that we didn't know before. And so what I really encourage people to do is, is like for white people in particular, like we're really good at being bystanders. If you look at our history of the civil rights movement, it wasn't only people of color. It was, mm -hmm. it was not only black people in the civil rights movement. There were some white people, there were some people of color who were not black in that movement. But by and large, white people were, not, were, were mostly looking on. I mean, if we weren't actively perpetuating the racism of Jim Crow, we were looking on. And so what we wanna say is like, try everything. I think about that Shakira song from Zootopia. Try everything. Go to the meeting. Speak up. Say what it is you're about. And that's all it has to be. It doesn't even have to be contradictory. This is what I stand for. And if you're one-on-one -on -one in a conversation with people who are anti-CRT, listen to them. What is it they're afraid of? What are they struggling with? What is it they want? Because the chances are good that you want it too. We have to remember that the anti-CRT movement is about sowing local conflict. So when we just like dive into the local conflict. In some ways, we're playing into the, 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 the strategy <laughs> that, you know, that we will fight each other. You know? So if I can listen to you, mm. affirm your fears, hear your fears, talk about what I'm about, and let you know that like, I fundamentally want to be in community with you, want to build community with you that's gonna be safe enough and big enough for all of us, then I'm, I'm working against the campaign. So. Um, so try everything, say what you, what, what you're about, take the risk that you might be wrong and then open yourself up to the feedback. So Mike, tell me, what did I get wrong? You know, call, trusted colleagues of color, native colleagues, what did I get wrong? And I'm not going to get crushed by your feedback. I'm going to take it in and I'm going to do better next time. But if we don't create that draft, if we don't take that first step, then we don't even have anything to get feedback on. And so that's kind of, that's like, we're not going to do it perfectly. We know we're not going to do it perfectly. It would be better if we could. But since we can't, we got to just kind of take that first step, take in the feedback, keep growing and keep moving together. And then when we're down and out and I'm like so sad and demoralized and frustrated, I'm going to call Mike. I'm going to call Eleonora. I'm going to say, listen, I'm feeling really frustrated. I'm getting it all wrong. Help me out here. And then... I'm going to feel better in a couple of days. And what I've done there is I've navigated racial stress. I've navigated political stress, which is all inevitable. And I'm still standing. That was really, really good. Gosh. So I know we're coming up at our time. I want to ask just another question around um, for those listening in, for, for parents that are looking to raise anti-racist children, your advice on how to have those conversations at home and things to be talking about with our kids. So the book has a, a two whole chapters on this. For people who don't have kids, it's also about how all of us are socialized. So it's, it can be useful for people with kids or without. But essentially, we want to think about raising the bar. So it's not just about teaching kids not to be racist or not to do the wrong thing or use the wrong words, but to, to be actively anti-racist. And so it, we, we recommend multiple different things, but there's three big concepts that are skin, excuse me, skin color, uh, social construction and systems. So talking to kids over the course of their lives about what, what gives us skin color, where skin color comes from, 
and the fact that we all have melanin and it makes us who we it make it gives us our identity and it connects us to our ans our biological ancestry it often connects us to family and it doesn't make us better or worse melanin is just melanin it doesn't make you more intelligent it doesn't make you more athletic well but that's our skin color and that's for like a young age but at a certain point we can introduce social construction which is race which is the framework that our society puts over skin color and it says people with less melanin are white people and they deserve more resources and opportunity whereas people with a lot of melanin are black people and they deserve fewer resources and opportunities because of the fact that they have a lot of melanin so their black color disqualifies them from going to certain schools or owning land or having certain businesses um, so we have this bizarre system of race that we created that is false so children need and we all need to know that the system of race is false because it's really foundational to white supremacist thinking that we're fundamentally separate racial groups and we have you know that some groups just are better than others or should be distinct from others that is foundational to white supremacist thinking. So anti-racist thinking, even though we use the concept of race because we have to be able to talk about it, we have to be able to also acknowledge that it's a social construction. So in the book, we talk about how to talk about this with kids in ways that are really accessible, that it's skin color, social construction, and then systems. It's systems, banking system, mortgage system, education systems, businesses, government that make race real that really solidify those, that, that, those differences mm. um, and then codify them so that the average white family has te 10 times the net worth of the average black family, not because they're more intelligent or they're inherently better homeowners or something like that, um, but because of housing policy throughout the 20th century and, and access to education, access to things like the GI Bill um, that gave benefits and access to resources and opportunities to many, many white people. And so we try to we try to explain some of this history so that people can understand the ways in which those three things line up. And then we give exam like simple examples, like, you know, when my child is painting and they mix all their colors together, I used to say, oh, don't do that. You're going to make brown. And now I try to say, oh, look at that beautiful brown that you're making. What would you call that brown? Because I realize how much we denigrate black and brown as colors as a society. So there's like tiny ways we can do it as parents. And then there's big ways. Ultimately, we want to raise kids who are not colorblind, who are able to talk about how race is part of who they are and is part of who their friends are and is part of their experiences. And to be able to see that they live in a society that isn't fixed, that they can contribute to changing. So if they're a white child... They don't have to live with this with this definition of whiteness for the rest of their lives. If they think if they think our society is oppressive and they want to change what it means to be white, they have the power to do that as a white person. So we want we want our children to feel empowered to make change, not just by marching. Marching is one thing, but by through lots of little ways that they can speak up, where they can listen, um, and they can also counter some of the racial uh, misunderstandings that we have in our society. 
And Ali wrote many great books. One of the great books that she wrote is Raising Raised Questions. And at a very micro level, I think a lot of parents are, uh, they themselves don't know as much as they would like to know to be able to teach it to their children. So some of it, of course, the book guides to do that. But it's also so important for parents and for teachers and for friends or for any of us, just like we did in our group, to wander together. Teach your kids to wander together. How you can, how can you model uh, showing up in an anti-racist way the best you can as you are, where you are. So fumble with them in front of them. Discuss how you might have, oh, maybe you thought about this again. Maybe, you know, I got the Fitbit, that's right. That probably wasn't how I wanted to go about that. Um, I remember one time my daughter um, heard something in, in a book and she said, well, that's what I would have said. And I had a little bit of an inkling that there was something wrong with that, but I said to her, you're right. I think I would say that too. I don't know, let's think about it together. And then we discussed it for a while. We came up, oh yeah, I could see how that's patronizing. Huh, that's interesting. And so we, we sort of figured it out as we went along. So you don't have to have the book memorized to be able to raise children. You just have to have the willingness to ask the question with your children and then find the answer together and then try new things together just as you are exactly where you are. You can start, uh, you don't have any, uh, you don't miss anything to start on that path. You have everything you need to do that. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on the podcast and for writing a fantastic book with tons of practical steps that we can all take to be anti-racist, both inner and outer. Um, that was one thing that I thought was really unique about this book is not only you see actionable things and ways to be intentional, but also inner processing and also changing our thinking. I thought both, having both of those things combined in your book is fantastic. So thank you Thanks, so much Mike. for Thanks for the work you're doing. It's show. so powerful. And I can't wait to forward your podcast to so many people I know who are asking questions about how to help make the church more, more of a space where everybody feels belonging. And I'm just so grateful to you for the work you do. Yeah, what a beautiful conversation. Thank you for having us and asking such poignant questions. Um, really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Dogato Podcast. As always, you can get the show notes, video links, and resources mentioned in this episode on my blog at mikedelgado.org. You can also get updates to new shows and get access to the full archive of past shows by following the Dogato Podcast on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you ever have suggestions for future topics or guests you want to hear from on this show, please reach out. My email is Delgado at ucla.edu. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll chat more next time.